0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Theology and literature have always seemed a natural pair to me. In fact, I've written a master's thesis examining Ezekiel with the help of William Blake, another master's thesis digging into Christology through Amelia Lanier and John Milton, and a doctoral dissertation arguing that Spencer and Shakespeare and Milton were making moves in theological ethics that the Theological Academy, only caught up with in the late 20th century. So when I found out that uh, Dr. Sean Ross had a book for me to read about the Eucharist and 17th century English poets, I knew I was going to be talking to my kind of thinker. Sean's recent book, The Eucharist, Poetics and Secularization from Oxford University Press poses some really great questions about some really great poems, and Christian Humanist Profiles is really glad to welcome him to the show. Thanks for coming aboard, Sean.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: In some important ways, your book looks closely and diligently at 17th century English poetry in a project that is countering. And I would say calling into question some of the common meta narratives that have shaped the way that we see broader spans of history. So let's start with, uh, you know, the secularization part of your title, uh, what is the secularization hypothesis and how does it tend to tell stories about the movement from medieval to modern moments? over the last 700 years give or take
1: yeah thanks that's a really helpful starting question so from a really big picture the secularization narrative or hypothesis is this claim that goes back probably at least as far as the Enlightenment, but really has this kind of special flourishing in the origins of the social sciences in the 19th century this idea that uh the world was in fact becoming less and less religious, but also that this process was somehow inevitable or a kind of natural result of human intellectual development and not just a historical accident. So this way of understanding, which uh, usually focused around European history, but kind of projected some of those features to being kind of universal, uh, has has had this sort of interesting effect of interpreting major and intellectual cultural movements That were profoundly religious, but that predate the Enlightenment as somehow part of a process of human development towards a secular society. Uh, And not just a part of that process, but a kind of necessarily part of the necessary part of that process. So, kind of like a kid growing up, society has its phases that are necessary, kind of has these religious moments, uh, but those are sort of prepubescent or adolescent. And then eventually you grow up and you become secular and modern. And this is just what happens to societies, the way that children grow up. Um, and obviously one key moment in Europe's religious history that has been particularly read in this manner is the Reformation, which you know, you might think, oh, this is a religious movement. It's a movement of religious renewal and revival. Well, actually it's kind of a necessary step on the way to a modern secular society. And a good, I, I think a good way you see this show up uh, in modern parlance is when in, in sometimes in popular discourse Uh, You sometimes hear people say something about like, oh, you know, the reason Islam is so extremist or that Islamic violence uh, exists in the world is because Islam never had its reformation or it hasn't had it yet. Uh, Right. So that there's this sense in which, okay, you know, we obviously had our reformation and it was religious, but it kind of got us somewhere else post-religious. So, you know, Islam is kind of at an earlier stage of development than Western secular society. Uh, But there's sort of two ways of taking taking this secularization story. One, we could think of it as something I call a sort of triumphalist model, in which the story of progress is something, you know, from good to good. It's always better, progress, life is great, you know, we ending superstition and so on.
0: And and Uh, in some versions, it is from terrible to good. I'm thinking of the, you know, the especially distasteful, you know, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett version of the secularization story
1: yeah you sort of woke up from the middle ages one day and had the enlightenment and then suddenly life has been improving ever since um you know and it's not there's absolutely nothing to that story it's just fairly narrow but the probably the more common one amongst literary scholars and academics uh, in the humanities is what you might call a more tragic version of that um Of this process of dis of disenchantment and secularization, um, in which the process of maturation into secular societal adulthood also involves a kind of loss, uh, something that's that you miss. You know, the the way that when you're you know a kid, you grow up to be an adult, but then you remember and long for your childish innocence, and of course you can't go back. You have to acknowledge, you have to be a tough, you know, grown up and accept the reality. But you you miss something about this sense of childish innocence. You you. You feel like there was a necessary change, but you miss the magic of childhood. Uh, so similarly, from the 19th century onward, there's a kind of tragic sense that, yes, this shift into modernity is necessary and we have to leave behind religion. But we are losing something, too, especially with the kind of growth of technology and industrialization, that there's a sort of dark side to this adulthood. You know, you have to go out and get a job. <laughs> uh, you have to suffer through the alienation of of technocracy and and the sort of breaking up of of the individual of the communal life and so on and so in this tragic account of secularization uh which is in some ways you know very most profoundly expressed in the romantic movement there's this sense of you have to reclaim uh what was lost from this older religious way of thinking but in a kind of secular way and and usually the way that you recreate that is through some kind of art where art takes the place of religion you know you, you you, you, you don't believe in God anymore, but you believe in paintings or uh, whatever it is that's going to fill that spiritual hole. And that's going to kind of provide you some way to to fight off the dark sides of this secularizing modernity, the bits that are sort of technological and isolating and rational and scientific that kind of kill the human spirit. Um, so uh, but it's trying to do that without some recourse to some kind of divine outside. Uh, So that's that's kind of the overall secularization story that I set up and and in some ways want to critique, especially and and in as as my setup probably indicated, my beefs are more with the second version with the tragic story, uh, whereas I think that the first one is maybe not that seriously considered by too many people anymore.
0: Right, right. That makes good sense. So, I mean, within that story, then, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about, uh, the major terms of your title before we get to any poets, uh, you know, when people tell that story of, you know, the tragic secularization of Europe, and, you know, sometimes they slip and talk about, you know, the the secularization of the world, uh, how do the Eucharist and how does poetry uh, figure into that story? Well, yeah, let's start with
1: maybe just briefly with the Eucharist, Um, a sort of great example of this that comes up in the book is um, when Hegel talks about the Eucharist, and he talks about Luther as being sort of this great mover into modernity, because what he says is that the Eucharist isn't out there in the elements, you know, we give up on transubstantiation, the experience of the Eucharist is in yourself. So, you know, of course, Luther wasn't all the way there, but he was making the right moves from a, kind of God outside to a God inside. Uh, and so, you know for for Hegel, the reading of of Protestant Eucharistic theology was a sort of major theological step in the direction of modernity. Now, of course, that's a terrible reading of Luther, because Luther was deeply committed to the literal outsideness of the body of Christ in the Eucharist in a way that other later Lutherans weren't. and and Hegel just kind of back projects that onto Luther. Um, but then also in, um, to to go to poetry, maybe a little bit of a personal narrative would be helpful here, which is that I started this project years and years ago, it was my doctoral work and even began as a kind of idea as an MA student. I was noticing that the Eucharist was appearing or references to the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper or sort of the various names you want to give this ritual that's so central to Christian life uh, in all of these strange places in 16th and 17th century poetry outside what you might think of as its natural habitat, uh, you know, not exclusively in devotional poetry, but in sex poems um, or in poems about, you know, what angels, sections of Paradise Lost about what angels eat or, uh, and I was trying to explain it. You know, what, Why is this showing up everywhere? That was the sort of question that I started with. And, and a couple of other people had noticed this as well. And, and they, uh, and of course what happens to anybody writing a PhD is that other people start writing about it annoyingly while you're writing it uh and I kept on feeling scooped uh or being worried you know another book would come out and I think what what how is somebody Uh, else that, that is
0: the anxiety of the last year of everyone's dissertation I'm pretty sure
1: yeah fortunately I thought that the answers were wrong um or maybe I maybe I was forced to feel that way but who knows um but there they are tended to strongly follow um, a basic thesis that I think is most clearly exemplified in a book by a scholar uh, written by a scholar named Regina Schwartz called Sacramental Poetics at the Dawn of Secularism. And it was quite old now, 2008. Um, and her basic argument is that it, the references to the Eucharist enter poetry when belief in the actual Eucharist starts to fade. So there's a kind of compensation belief in in transubstantiation and Catholic commitment to the Eucharist starts to fade because of the Protestant Reformation. And so people are kind of sad about this. They miss having Jesus on their plates on Sundays. And so they so they find a way to make up for it in their poetry. Um, so poetry and the Eucharist have something in common for for Schwartz and I agree with her on this that they're both about manifesting a kind of presence bread and wine uh Christians drink in the communion uh, and eat is supposed to somehow make Jesus close to you and in poetry the words on the page create a connection they make make the author present to a reader in a, in a special way uh, and in poetry it's an especially embodied kind of presence because it's not just the content of the poetry that matters but Uh, what we might think of as those non-connotative parts of language, the material parts of language that manifest that person's presence to you. Um, So for Schwartz, though, this is a kind of ironic connection because it comes out precisely at the moment that belief in that actual connection happening in a religious level fades. So there's a kind of problem in in that reading, um, and it's one that I think is most exemplified by her work, but but followed largely by several other critics, that poetry, when it's talking about absence, when it's using the Eucharist to talk about absence is really kind of belying of, an anxiety about absence or loss, uh, you know, God. And, and as if, to, if it wasn't hard enough, you know, clear enough, uh, she subtitles that book, When God Left the World, like as if it's really clear that God has in fact gone <laughs> and this is the moment at which you can identify it. Um, so, uh, as perhaps my tone has already suggested, this seemed to me a kind of profoundly wrong headed way of thinking about the issue. Um, and so I, we'll probably touch on this a bit more, But the key issues were one that it sort of read against the poems. When they said presence, they actually meant absence. and i'm I'm mistrustful of that interpretive move, generally speaking, when you say, "Well, the poem appears to be saying this, but in fact, I, the wise, modern person will interpret what it is really saying. Um, and so I thought maybe there's a way we could read take them a little bit more at their word. Uh, and two, because it seemed to fundamentally misunderstand Reformation era theology about the Eucharist, uh, which is really in all of its manifestations uh, so much more focused on experience Christ's presence more intimately uh, in Holy Communion rather than sort of denying it or saying that it isn't real. you know none of the reformers, want to get rid of the Eucharist they want to make the Eucharist something deeper and richer and they are responding to what what it, they saw as an empty ritual something that wasn't achieving what it was supposed to be achieving so so again in a similar way i sort of saw a lot of these critics as reading against the text in a way that wasn't justified
0: well one of the moves that you make is you find a lot of these tensions at the very least and sometimes you know very directly these debates uh emerging much earlier than the 17th century so let's start with the pearl poet uh, in what way does pearl as a poem play out these sort of paradoxes of presence uh both eucharistic and otherwise and how do those paradoxes come to shape the judgment that the poem's persona displeases god when he disregards boundaries because you know, I, I remember the first time I read Pearl, I thought, you know, this is way too modern a poem to be in uh, Middle English, but there it is.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, so, yeah, it's not as well known a poem. And part of the reason for including it, as you mentioned, is is just to sort of move the timeline earlier. Um, one of the one of the things that, that Schwartz's book and several others do is they start in the Reformation and they say, look, here's this thing that's emerging in the Reformation and I sort of want to say, well, is it really emerging in the Reformation? And my my answer is no, it's not. It it predates that. Uh, So so that's a sort of simple strategic reason for including these early uh, the pro poet, but. Pearl is uh, an anonymous alliterative verse poem, if people don't know it, which I'm sure many don't, um, composed sometime in the late 14th century. And its only extant copy is in a single manuscript, which includes a few other poems. And most people think of them as being by the same author. But probably importantly,
0: Sir. Oh, go ahead. You're going to say it. Go ahead. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. People probably, the one that people know from first year English is (laughs) Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, right? so you, you've probably taught that, I imagine.
0: Oh, I, I've taught Pearl and I've sir, taught Sir Gowan. I love both of those poems dearly.
1: Yeah, okay, good. Well, you're you're in a smaller club of Pearl lovers than uh, uh, than some. But so Pearl is this dream vision. It begins with this narrator telling a story about losing his beloved Pearl, which is a kind of symbol most people think for, for his daughter, or maybe some kind of female relative, but a beloved person from his life who's died. And he meets in a dream this Pearl, this maiden, this young woman a, in a dream. And he has this conversation with her in something like heaven, but he has to sort of talk with her across this river. Uh, and at the very end of the poem, he uh, he's so overwhelmed with a desire to be close to her that he rushes through the river. And then of course, as soon as he steps in the water, w- wakes up. Um, yeah, and as you say, there's a very modern feel to that kind of sense of popping out of the dream uh when you want to right at the moment you want to get close.
0: Well and also what strikes me as a, a supremely egalitarian take on, you know, heavenly reality, right? I mean, you know, the peasant girl becomes nobility among the, you know, ladies of Christ.
1: Right. Yeah. This sort of um and and he even the narrator even gets kind of upset by this at one point where he, he goes, wait a minute, you know, I feel like I'm a better Christian than you are. Um well, how come you get all of these heavenly rewards Um, but there's something weird about the end of the poem that a lot of interpreters have noticed that there's this very personal narrative and then at the end the narrator goes back to church and talks about watching a eucharist which is by the way way most people would experience the eucharist if they weren't ministers in the medieval world they would would watch rather than partake Um, and some people have felt like, we're not entirely sure what to do with that. Maybe it was a little hackneyed. Maybe it was a little just, oh, we're trying to do something that feels pious at the end. At the same time, some other critics have noticed that the pearl, the symbol, looks a lot like, uh, and and is treated a lot like a kind of wafer um, and has these kind of resonances with the, with the Eucharistic wafer. So what I argue in the book, and I'm really indebted in a lot of ways to a scholar, another Canadian scholar, by the way, named Jennifer Garrison, um, is that... Uh, there, what we might call, a there's a sort of philosophical connection in the poem between the desire to be close to somebody else to be the desire to be close to another person and the desire to come close to the kind of divine presence that's made available in the medieval Eucharist and Catholic understandings of the Eucharist. So uh, according to the theology of transubstantiation, this idea that sort of in layman's terms says that the bread and wine is literally Jesus's body and blood. Um, God is is notionally very very close to you. You know, you you literally take Jesus into your body. Uh, at the same time, it's experientially very far away from you because it doesn't feel like that. And actually, it would be gross if it were right. Like you wouldn't want to.
0: Yeah, eat. you you want the bread to taste like bread,
1: right? Yeah, if it stops tasting like bread, it's it's scary. And you know, it usually happens like in in some medieval legends. You know, someone who doesn't believe the bread starts bleeding in their hands and it's a relief when it stops bleeding, right? Nobody goes, yay, that's nice. Um, so there's a kind of proximity and there's a kind of distance. And my suggestion in the in my reading of, of Pearl is that that's sort of what it's like with our intimacy with other people as well. Um, so normally when you eat something, you you turn it into yourself, right? And then you get rid of what you don't eat. But Eucharistic eating is different because it's a kind of incorporation that doesn't require assimilation or erasure. You know, you, you eat Jesus in the Eucharist, um, but weirdly the sort of opposite of what you'd expect to happen happens. Instead of him becoming part of your body, you become part of his. So there's a weird way in which you eat in the Eucharist, but the opposite thing from what normally happens, happens. Uh, normally when you eat somebody, it's cannibalism, right? You you bring them into yourself, and that's what's creepy about cannibalism. cannibalism. It's this absorption of somebody else into you. And Eucharistic eating is kind of close but different to cannibalism in, in an important way. And uh, what's different about it is that both people remain. There's a kind of difference and a sameness that happens. Uh, and what I suggest at the end of Pearl is there's a similar kind of dynamic going on, a desire that the speaker has not to respect the difference, uh, of this person. And that when he rushes across the river, what he's doing is losing track of her difference from himself. And in a way, we could say that there's almost something a bit cannibalistic about his desire to cross the river. It's a desire to turn somebody else into a sustenance for his needs, his desires. And the dream sort of reminds him, no, uh, the kind of intimacy you're looking for is one that requires a sort of respecting of difference. Um, And I think that that's in some way uh, what interests, especially someone like John Donne about the Eucharist as well, is that it models, uh, and again, I'm getting a little bit uh, abstract and philosophical here, but, but I think it models this idea of closeness that requires non-identity. So you have have to be close. In order to be close, you still have to be different. As soon as there's that difference gets erased entirely, then it stops being closeness and it starts being oneness. And oneness is is dangerous uh for the, in the pearl poem and and for someone like Dunn because it it's a sort of turning it's a difference between wanting to be with somebody else and wanting to turn somebody else into me.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, when we do move into the 17th century, I mean, you know, the the Eucharistic debates don't begin there, but they certainly become more pronounced there and and one of the interesting chapters that you write Uh, And listeners, I'll I'll go ahead and ask you to forgive my pronunciation. I know that 20 years ago, professors took pains to teach me how to say these names right. Uh, But many of these poets I haven't spent much time with in the intervening 20 years. So I'm going to call him Robert Southwell, and uh, Sean will pronounce his name correctly if I've mispronounced it. Um, But what makes Southwell interesting is that, you know, he is a poet who takes the relationship between Eucharist and poetry in a different direction precisely because it has become so dangerous to celebrate the Roman mass in, you know, a highly contested, um, you know, Christian England, right. You know, I mean, the contest between Catholic and Protestant, you know, uh, sometimes results in exile. Sometimes it results in worse. And, uh, you know, in that environment, Southwell is doing some very interesting things with poet and Eucharist. So, uh, Sean, I'll let you kind of take this in what direction you will. But uh, what what is Southwell's place in the story?
1: Yeah, um, and yeah, you're right. It's one of these mysterious English names where consonants drop out. uh, So most, I think, people pronounce uh, like experts say, "suffle." Suffle.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I remember Abraham Cooley. Which doesn't yeah. look anything like yeah. Cooley, but right. this one, I'm like, I feel like there's a funny pronunciation, but I've forgotten what it is. Thank you, Sean.
1: Yeah, no worries. Uh, so pedantry over. Uh, now, uh, so yeah, Southall is is kind of a fascinating figure because he was a Jesuit English missionary back to England under um, Elizabeth uh, when when Elizabeth was was queen and and England had kind of settled into Protestantism. And so it's not exactly the case that being Roman Catholic was illegal, but Roman Catholic evangelism was illegal. And being uh, a Roman Catholic priest was illegal because you were viewed as, well, because the Pope had excommunicated Elizabeth. So, you know, you can sort of understand uh, why they might feel a certain anxiety about that. But it, it put English Catholics in this awkward position where they were sort of allowed to exist, but not allowed access to their uh, liturgical apparatus for actually practicing out, you know, uh, actually practicing their faith, and so the the Jesuits, uh, you know, who sometimes people will call the shock troop of the Counter Reformation, were really keen to get back and into England and and you know bring them back to the Catholic Church and and to minister to the Catholics there, and and Robert Sothel was one of these young, hyper-educated, hyper-devout, faithful young men who went to for this great cause. And like most of the people uh, who did it, he got caught and, and uh, executed as a traitor, which meant being hung drawn and quartered at Tyburn. Um, so met a grisly end, but also um, seems to have tremendously impressed the people who watched him, uh, that he, he behaved like a saint. Uh, and so even Protestants who observed this um, seemed to have been quite moved by his death and the. The story goes in one of the recordings that some people ran out of the crowd and tried to tug on his feet while he was being hung, um, while he's being hanged, excuse me, and uh, to try and end his suffering. Um, and so interestingly, even though Sotho, uh while Sothel sort of became known later more for, for being a poet, and that he'd written all of these manuscript poems that, that circulated illicitly um, in, during this time amongst Catholics, uh, but his poems, after his death, were printed anonymously first and and uh, became quite popular among Protestants too. So he has this kind of funny double life in his reading reception sort of during his lifetime, manuscript reading by Catholics and afterwards Protestant readers who read him in print. But one of the things that I suggest is that um because he was writing to an audience that usually didn't have access to the mass, um, his poetry functions as a kind of a substitute uh, for them. And, and in some of his best poems, I think one, one of my favorite ones is a poem called Christ's Bloody Sweat, which is about Christ's agony in Gethsemane. And uh, it's a concrete poem in which the words um, on the page move down vertically from, you know, in the same way that the blood pours down Christ's body. So there's a, there's a way in which the, the words become flesh or blood in a way that anticipates Herbert's shape poetry, um, but that is uh, kind of interesting because it anticipates someone like Herbert in a way, even though they were very different religiously and became very popular amongst a Protestant audience. But the intention was really to serve uh, a Catholic audience that was feeling isolated and alone and that wanted some kind of, Access to confession and to mass, which they couldn't get, but which they got sort of in a secondhand way from Suckle's poetry.
0: Well, I do want to talk about uh, uh, Herbert because he's one of my favorite poets of this period. Uh, Before we get to any particular poems, uh, one of my favorite parts of your book is your account of poetic influence in Herbert. Uh, You know, our listeners who went to grad school in humanities or even majored in English. Might remember Bloom's Freudian argument that poetic influence is an edipal matter, a desire for the successor poet to murder and supplant the ancestor poet. But you suggest that love rather than violence might be the character of poetic influence. So how does that work, and uh, what makes it better than Bloom's, you know, weird edipal thing?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you, you sort of explained Bloom. Bloom has this idea that. Yeah, when when you want to be a great poet, you have to sort of kill the poets that were for you. And they're kind of like your poetic daddy. And so you have to, you know, kill them in order to take their place. Uh, and I mean, that's not it's and, a little and bit the book
0: sense. listeners. is called The Anxiety of Influence, just in case you think we're making this up. We're really not. <laughs>
1: um and I mean, it was a very influential way of thinking, and and it makes sense to a certain degree, right? You know, I'm sure everybody's had the experience of sitting down to write something and feeling overwhelmed by the kind of uh, greatness that has come before you, and who am I to even enter into it? And so for Bloom, you need you need a kind of violence to overcome that. Um, but I'm actually very indebted to this this idea from um, an old professor of mine from the University of British Columbia, Stephen Guybray, um, wrote this wonderful book called loving in verse and he says uh exactly that that actually more often what you need is a sense of affection uh for the for the person who comes before you need to have, have a sense of belonging and um, a, a kind of invitation or welcome or or even desire to be close to that person who comes um and I'm sure people have also had that experience intuitively with their own mentors right uh, don't I mean, I sort of joke that when you finish the PhD, you have to murder your supervisor so you can take their position. But, um, you know, but that's not really how it usually works. Usually there's a great deal of affection if things have gone well. Um, so what I suggest in the poetry is that a lot of people have read Herbert as having a kind of Bloomian relationship to God in his poetry, That that he's trying to do something, he's trying to write, but God keeps coming in and saying, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You know, Sh- shut up, <laughs> stop talking. And Herbert kind of wrestles with that. And, and, but you can't do what Bloom suggests, which is to kill God, you know, he's well, You maybe Nietzsche can, but Herbert certainly can't.
0: Um, well, No, well, no, 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 Nietzsche just discovered the body. He didn't do the <laughs> killing. Right. Yes. Maybe, maybe, maybe Herbert somehow was involved, but, um,
1: uh, the the key from from my perspective is that it's sort of it's an impossible task, right? You can't you can't write over God, uh, especially if you're thinking in the theological framework that Herbert was, which is a Calvinist theological framework, in which you know there's nothing I can do that's not depraved. So how do you understand uh, the, the the even the reason or purpose or function of artistic production in that Calvinist milieu? Um, it's hard to make sense of it. And and my suggestion is that uh, much of what the temple is about is this effort to reframe what Christian artistic production is away from a kind of effort to do something for God and more to think of it as a kind of grateful response, loving response, um, enjoyable, pleasurable response back as a kind of grateful response to God. and And, in that way of thinking, you know when you when you are thinking in terms of love rather than contest, um, this question of what belongs to who is a little bit more ambiguous, right? You know with if, uh, if you if you're thinking only in terms of contest, you know, I have to kill the great predecessor because I have to make my own way, my own thing. Whereas if my relationship to the predecessor literarily or theologically is one of, they've given me something and I get to dilate it, respond to it, expand on it. That sort of changes the relationship. And, and so for me, um, the temple is really about that. Uh, and I, I use two different kinds of theological terms in the book, one, one what I call propitiatory sacrifice, the sacrifice where you sort of try and give something in the place of something else. Um, And then what is the language of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, obviously itself a scriptural reference. So thinking of the one kind of sacrifice as something that sort of stumbles, makes Herbert stumble, and the other kind of sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as this thing that opens stuff up for him.
0: Yeah, and I mean, when when we think about, you know, sacrifice as an act of thanksgiving, of course, I mean, the word... Eucharist itself immediately comes to mind there. And, you know, I mean, one of the poems that you examine, I think, uh, very fruitfully is uh, Love Three. And in your account, that poem's Eucharistic Poetics, I mean, addresses that gap between the poet's making and God's creation. And, you know, notes that, you know, what the poet makes, uh, you know, can never be of the same kind as what God creates. But what's fascinating is that that doesn't uh you know it doesn't make poetry cease uh but it invites poetry to repeat which is something that also is very eucharistic so uh i've kind of stumbled through your analysis uh give our give our readers the good version of it
1: uh well i'll i'll try um yeah i sort of see love 3 as the kind of masterpiece summation of that interplay that i was just describing of moving from imagining one's action as a kind of continually failing effort to do something for God, uh, to a shift towards contentment and gratefulness, but one that is productive rather than merely passive or stultifying. You know, it leads to, to something more. Um, you know, and, and, I mean, the poem is, is a short one, so it might be worth just quickly reading. Um, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame, my dear. Then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. So there's this kind of continual back and forth in the poem between uh, sort of Love making this offer and the poet kind of retracting and wanting to do something instead, um, offering offering something. You know, the kind of the best example is. Um, my dear, then I will serve, you know, let me do the serving, you know, this sort of let me wash your feet. Uh, And of course, uh, you know, the answer is no, I have to do, I have to be the one I have to do the, I have to do the action. And of course the final action is a kind of Eucharistic reception. You must sit down and taste my meat. And that's not just my food, but my, my own flesh. Uh, And then you have this kind of wonderful uh, laconic, um, epigrammatic ending so i did sit and eat that's so been so satisfying to so many readers for so long um and yeah, so some
0: right. people just, just so our listeners don't get confused here laconic in the sense of ancient sparta not in the sense of the french theorist
1: right yes well, i hope yeah not not quite like that um but uh the so so some people i think have have gone like ah well you see there's herbert finally shutting up right um he stopped, He reaches this kind of um, end, and and then the poetry ends because it's the last lyric in the collection of the temple. Um, and there is a kind of beauty in the way the poem comes to rest and end. Uh, but it's worth noticing that in the temple, these lines are immediately followed by the Gloria: uh, "Glory be to God on high, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men," which is what is supposed to come at the end of the communion liturgy uh, in. Cranmer service in the in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so it's what sends you out into the world, but also reminds you that you have to get come back again next Sunday and enjoy that divine intimacy again and again next week or even tomorrow. So I think there's something helpful in the way that it connects to Herbert's poems, because they, on the one hand, are sort of famous for being um, so beautifully lyrical and short and, and putting so much into so little space. But at the same time, um, have proved worth rereading and rereading to so many readers over so many centuries. You know, that uh, it's had this kind of devotional repet- repetitiveness, that it functions as something like a liturgy. And that's been one of the things that's been so moving and powerful about Herbert's poetry for so many, is precisely that it's something you can come back to again and again and again. And in, in Herbert's milieu, that's sort of what's distinctive about the Eucharist, is it's this way to connect with the divine again and again and again without worrying about w- whether you're sort of doing everything perfectly. It's a way to enjoy that experience of coming back and doing things again.
0: Very good, indeed. All right. We have tarried too long before getting to done. Uh, now our listeners need to hear you talk done. Your chapter on that great poet's shifting identities refuses the absolute separation of the rake, Jack, and the preacher, Dr. Dunn, but sees in his ongoing concern with communion a way to talk both as a, uh, I'll I'll say, they're going to be distinctive but continuous parts of the same poetic personality. So, you know, all of this sounds Eucharistic to me. Uh, Have at it for a moment. Sure.
1: Thanks. Uh, yeah, so probably most, I, I'm sure a good many of, of your listeners know quite a bit about John Donne. but as a reminder, he was a famous preacher, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, but also a poet, and after he died, all these rather salacious and playful poems that had been circulating in manuscript were published, and there's always been this biographical question about how or whether to separate these two parts uh, of Dunn, the figure of Donne. So Dunn himself sort of jokingly referred to these two characters as Uh, You know, the younger sower of wild oats, Jack Dunn, and his more august priestly self, Dr. Dunn. Um, But in a way that's kind of connected to this, critics have also long noticed that Dunn in his secular poetry, in his preaching, and in his religious poetry, has this fascination with what you might call the two-in-one, with mutually constitutive pairs and dyads, uh, whether that's bodies and souls, love and and sexuality or physical expression of love, Christ's human nature and divine nature, and, and even his own sort of dual identity as a secular and, and a religious figure. So the sort of both and is a continual issue of fascination for Dunn. Um, and I think this is why both his religious and his secular poetry seems fascinated with the Eucharist as it's this ritual that most uh, clearly encapsulates this both andness in the kind of everyday workings of the christian life of his of his age um, so you know it's centered around things that are both wine and blood bread and body um, uh, and so what i argue in the book is that the eucharist there's sort of two different ways of imagining the eucharist um one way in which Dunn sort of thinks about the eucharist more more like transubstantiation where you Uh, the symbol or the object is a way you kind of project yourself as a version stands in for you is totally identifiable with you Um, and then there's poems that are more interested in the both andness of the Eucharist of uh, of its breadness and body of its wine and blood Um, and there's a kind of ironic uh, relationship between these poems that the poems that are most interested in using the Eucharist as an image of sort of projecting the self into an object uh, are the ones where it fails most often, you know. So for example, uh, in a poem like Twickenham Garden, Dunn imagines uh, collecting his tears uh, and, you know, passing them around in a cup to a bunch of other, you know, discontented dudes uh, and, and says, compare my tears to my lover's tears and you'll see that hers are false and mine are true. So there's this kind of funny way in which there's this whole evocation of false and true sacraments, but in this very ironic context with where what's true about Dunn's tears is that he's separated from somebody else. Um, And there's a kind of opposite tendency in Dunn's poetry, I argue, where where there are other poems where the Eucharist is invoked, but not as a way to sort of project yourself into an object, but as a way of imagining an object that connects two different people. Or that brings two people together through an object. Um, and in those cases, um, there's often a more successful and meaningful connection um, between, say, lover and beloved, or between self and God.
0: We need to talk about one of those poems where he connects people, uh, because as many times as I've read and as many times as I've taught the flea, I've only ever seen the dirty jokes, but you're doing theology with it, and that fascinates me. Um, you know, I think that your treatment of this poem ranks up there with the Christian Feminist Podcast episode on baby, it's cold outside when it comes to complicating verse that I tend to dismiss too readily. So, what's going on theologically with the flea, and why do our listeners need to consider it more carefully? Or why do I need to consider it more carefully? Let's be honest.
1: Yeah, well, um, I actually think that's a pretty good comparison, you know, so for the sort of more feminist reading of baby it's cold outside is that is that the female speaker is playing along right and and uh my reading of the flea is is suggests that at least that's a possible way of reading this um that so the the sort of gambit of the poem as i'm sure many of you many people have have heard is is that uh the speaker says, oh, well, there's this flea and it's bitten me and it's bitten you and there's blood that's mingled in the flea. So why don't we sleep together? Because, you know, we're already and and it's sort of famous. Well, we've already year.
0: we've already exchanged fluids, really. What else is there to do?
1: Exactly right. And it sort <laughs> of seems like a, you it'd be hard to imagine that being a very successful wooing technique in actual life. Um So. So you can sort of read it as a kind of joke between men, but I think you can also read it as um, a kind of joke between the lover and the beloved. And I, I think one good reason for thinking that is that she intervenes. She comes in and she squishes the flea uh, and then that creates a kind of response. So I think that's a really interesting thing for Dunn to do if is to have this female persona be absent in the sense that she never says anything in the text but she's the one who creates what we might call the volta of the poem, right? She jumps in and she sort of squishes his metaphor and says, "What do you think of that?" And then, and then he he has to play along, right? And he has to say, "Well, okay, so you didn't do anything, you know? We're not this whole metaphysics that I've created in my weird imagination. Nothing happened when you squished the flea, so probably nothing will happen if you sleep with me either." Uh, so now you could or the way i i tend to read i think the poem has a bit of charm in it because because you as a reader get to inhabit the position of the female wooer right i think you your interpretation of the poem is implicitly the one of do i play along as a as a wooed you know lover or do i say get out of here you creep you know um there there's it's up to us so there's a kind of funny way in which although the flea is obviously sort of a joke it has this eucharistic effect which is to really pull you into this intimate dialogic encounter with the speaker and to make him and to make yourself and this sort of imagined female presence all kind of together there in this sort of virtual space of the poem um so you know without wanting to risk to sort of you know, overanalyzing the poem and killing the fun of it, my my hope is actually to kind of read it in a more fun way um, and to suggest that it sort of can be read as a poem in which you get to play, you're invited to play along, and this sort of invitation happens through a sort of series of of Eucharistic jokes.
0: Very good. I want to turn to another Roman Catholic poet that you uh, spend some time with, and that is, again, pardon my pronunciation, Richard Crashaw. I can't remember if this is one that you pronounce it like it I looks think or not. I that's certainly how I say it. So okay, maybe- all right. So th- th- this is one that actually uh, looks like it sounds, all right. Yeah. Um, this book digs into more poetry than we could possibly take on in an hour. So give our listeners a couple interesting lines and a framework to take with them when they go out and they get your book and they read your book. What makes Crashaw's Catholic poetry a specimen of secularization in ways that Suthell's is not?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for people who don't know Crashaw, he's just so weird and wonderful. And, uh, you know, I think for me, he has got this strange fascination with, uh, well, he, he was a convert to Roman Catholicism during the English Civil War. And like a lot of converts to Catholicism that went through that time, Catholicism came to represent something of a kind of nostalgic past unity where, you know, kings and country were all together. Uh, you know what? In fact, there are some conservative Catholics who still kind of work in the same
0: basic. yeah, that that. that that never entirely went away, did it?
1: yeah. Um, and And interestingly, though, Krashtos poetry is all about liquids. He has this fascination with blood and wine, but also with milk and tears and all about these kind of ecstatic experiences. And it's often connected to a desire, I think, to escape from the political violence and factionalism that. that Crashaw thinks of as kind of emerging out of two roughly or two strictly divided uh, political and religious bodies, right? If you can think in terms of liquids, then there's no conflict, right? There's no there's no fight between different body politics or theological bodies. There's, it can sort of wash over it all those conflicts. Um, and so there's lots of focus on on Catholic devotional figures in his writing, even before he converted formally to Mary and and Mary Magdalene. Um, the, his poem, The Weeper, is probably the one that I think is just the most magnificent poem and so bizarre. My favorite moment is when Mary Magdalene's tears float up into the sky and start floating on the Milky Way. And Crashaw says, uh, they become the cream. <laughs> and, and, then a, and then an angel comes along and dips a cup in and starts drinking them for breakfast. And then the angel sings and, and he says that it tastes of this breakfast all day long which is like, it's absolutely bananas. It's the weirdest poem, but I, I love it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I sort of, I joke in the book that it's something about Mary Magdalene's high degrees of devotional butterfat, um, but uh, his focus on liquids and bloods, I argues, is is connected to, yeah, desire to avoid conflict Um, that comes from dealing with different bodies. And and in this way, Crashaw's sacramentalism is nostalgic in a way that Suthles is not, uh, even though he's a Catholic. And in this way, it does actually anticipate a kind of secularization model or a certain aspect of it um, as a key component of that narrative, especially in the tragic version, involves this kind of nostalgia for a lost wholeness, a kind of connection to the divine, a more porous version of the self, Uh, less separated from nature and from others. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which I think Crashaw is sort of already anticipating a model in which you look back at transubstantiation as that time when everything held together. Um, At least there's there's the beginning stages of that in Crashaw.
0: Right, right. And, you know, and that's when, if you've got a medieval historian in the same zip code that that person will come crashing through the door and saying no transubstantiation was part of a dispute it was not the uh unified anyway uh right. that's how medieval exactly. historians can be um boy Crash
1: uh, the doors uh, at any time
0: <laughs> yeah that, <laughs> like that's how they bag. are that's how they are <laughs> sean a solid third of my do- doctoral dissertation was on milton's poetry so i'm going to restrain myself on this conversation So say what you're here to say and don't let me wander off. Why should we pay more attention to food and consumption and digestion when we read Paradise Lost?
1: Yeah, well, it's probably me who's in danger of wandering off here. But um, the yeah, so I think maybe just a, a useful way to not go on forever here would be to talk a little bit about this book by a guy named Christopher Ricks called Milton's Grand Style where he talks about how sometimes Milton uses these words uh, that have negative connotations, but he sort of imagines what they would mean in a pre-fall world. Uh, so it's sort of like, imagine if English had all the same vocabulary, but there was no sin. How What would, what would the words with negative connotation do?
0: And, and I'll say of that book that once you have read it, uh, it is hard to get that project out of your mind when you read Paradise Lost, because you start spotting things that just seem undeniable once you've once you've been made aware of it.
1: Yeah, and yeah, so and I mean it's a, it's it's such a compelling argument. I think it makes a good case. So, for example, there's a a river in Eden described as having mazy error, uh, and of course Milton, the Latinist, knows that errare in Latin means to wander about instead of to make a mistake. We're gonna, we can mean that too, but. It, so it sort of imagines, oh, in in Eden we could use this word error in an entirely positive way, and yet at the same time it kind of carries with it this sort of creepy reminder that we're not in a fallen world, uh, we're not in a pre-fall world. We we know that that's coming down the way. Um, and one of the things I I suggest in the book is that a sort of more complicated version of this happens with the Eucharist in Paradise Lost. That Milton wants to imagine something like a kind of sacramental activity what that would be like if there had never been a fall and and Milton kind of naturalizes it uh, so in in book five uh Raphael the angel comes to visit Adam and Eve and there's this weird question about whether angels can eat people food um, and, and Raphael says yes because everything's made out of one first matter all and it's arranged in this weird complex hierarchy of something like density it's sort of denser at the bottom and less dense at at the top and everything feeds each other uh he says the grosser feeds the purer so there's this, this hierarchy of density everything's in the same matter but yet somehow everything's kind of eating the thing below it uh and moving up towards heaven and this is why raphael says maybe adam and eve one day uh will turn at last to all spirit you know they'll be able to have angel bodies too and in in this conversation about digestion and what happens, um, you know, he says Raphael really eats, uh, and, and then this weird word transubstantiate appears, uh, which has always sort of vexed readers. Why why would Milton use this Catholic word to describe this? And and my suggestion is that what Milton's doing is is kind of like what Ricks describes as, as a sort of back projection of something that he thinks has fallen, right? Milton is a good uh <laughs> non, he's a radical Protestant, more radical than most in a lot of ways. Uh, But he wants to kind of have his Eucharist and and eat it too, if you'll forgive the pun, but uh, the, and and sort of turn it into something that exists kind of naturally in the world, Uh, much like Adam and Eve don't have liturgies, but they sing like they have a liturgy. Um, There is a a way in which the Eucharist is just sort of built into Milton's pre-fall universe. In which you get to imbibe the divine presence and be incorporated into the divine body not through some special church mediated action but through just the very everyday acts of of eating um and that's so that's as important not only because disordered eating in a very literal sense is what leads to the fall but also milton in the later books of the poem is really fascinated with the virtue of temperance which is I argue, a kind of key way that he sees is that's how you sort of get back to the right kind of integration into the whole is learning how to eat rightly, not only in the literal sense of of eating, not too much, um, but in the sense of how you respond to learning and knowledge, which which um, Raphael also says knowledge is as food. and uh, If you have too much of it, you get gas. Um,
0: <laughs> right. Which, you know, a lot of people read that as uh, Milton's unwillingness to take a side in the galileo controversy but that's another conversation for another day i I said i wouldn't wander and i'm going to try to hold to that (laughs) um listeners i hope you've gotten the impression tonight that uh or you might be listening to to it during the day but we're recording at night uh this is a book that you take your time with uh today's conversation is just an invitation to the party but i want to ask this as we run up on time the book's conclusion interacts with one of my own favorite living theologians, William T. Kavanaugh, to argue that modern theology is not done with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is not done with the modern world. So what does the Eucharist still stand to complicate in a world that thinks we're pretty much over it? And how does a careful study of English Eucharistic poetry help us to think about the questions before us now in terms of the political and the theological and the poetic? I know, I, I just asked a gigantic question that can take its own book to answer. Uh, but take a run at it, Sean.
1: Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, we'll see how rambly this is. Um, well, so the the uh Kavanaugh story or the Kavanaugh that I was that you mentioned that was a story that he tells about bishops in Chile who decided to stop uh who started refusing Eucharist to people who were known torturers working for the government. Um and it was a sort of an example for me of how the Eucharist you know was had this profound political impact and it made public in a way people who were excluding themselves from the body politic through this act of violence and and that weirdly this was so galvanizing even for secular Chileans to see this kind of made manifest that these people who were enacting such egregious violence against the body politic were being excluded from this participation in a spiritual body um so that was a kind of just a a sort of practical way of talking about how there are all kinds of places in which the eucharist is not some faded nostalgic uh you know magic that nobody believes in anymore but is actually really powerful and and i probably could have added uh the way that there were there were so many kind of gestures in the direction of a kind of sacramentality in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, Um, there there have been important ways in which major political consensus forming uh, ways of, uh, or projects have looked for something like a sacrament or like the Eucharist to kind of create a meaningful body that coheres rather than just sort of a group of individuals who agree not to kill each other for 10 minutes. Um, And So my suggestion is that a a richer understanding of Eucharistic theology um, would better help us explain both why poetry is often being seen as a kind of modern day sacrament, as a kind of antidote to the the, um, kind of alienating, you know, that it's going to somehow fulfill these political functions, that it's going to bring us together or create unity or, or make us meaningfully one or connect us with nature. And I mean, I don't, entirely think poetry has no role in that, but I think it's sometimes oversold uh, amongst literature professors. Um, But as, you know, sort of a guru of the book, like, like, I'm sure many listeners here for me was uh, Charles Taylor. And he points out that one thing that unites historical Christianity with most of Western secular culture is this ambivalent relationship to the body. So one thing that Christianity and our cult, our secular culture or secular aspects of our culture have in common is, on the one hand, a certain sort of deep-seated suspicion about the body and its impulses to sexuality, to consumption of food, uh, to violence, um, and so on. Um, and there's a way in which we privilege the rational and disembodied, right? You know, you sort of control your emotions with your mind, and you, you, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, you do mindfulness, right? You step out of the body. I'm sure you, probably in, in the high school that you're at now, there's, there's some mindfulness exercises there that becoming seem to be more and more popular amongst my kids' schools. But there's this sort of rational mastery over the, over the body. Um, on the other hand, in, often in quite different ways, Christianity and secular culture have a sense that the body really matters, uh, that we can't just live in our heads and that our social and political belonging can't just be thought. You know, you can't just reason your way into it. You can't just believe the right things. Uh, there has to be some kind of ritual or sacrament to ground that. Um, and and the Eucharist is really the central rite around which Christianity has had that argument. Um, what's the relationship between the rational aspects of ourselves and what's the relationship between our embodied parts of ourselves and how do we art- articulate that uh, theologically? Um, so when Christian partic- poets participated in that, conversation they really I think still have a lot to say to us and to a culture that whether religious or secular maintains that kind of ambivalent relationship to the body you know what do we privilege do we privilege our embodiment our sense of belonging our sense of connectedness even when that's sort of irrational and may lead to violence or do we privilege a kind of rationalizing technologizing mental uh, control over things Uh, or is there some way to find a kind of navigation between those two things and and uh, my sense is that an understanding of how the eucharist has functioned within christianity might be informative for those bigger projects going forward for even people who have no connection spiritually to christianity
0: that that was both brief and focused i'm impressed i'm impressed um sean i have had i have been at the wheel for most of this conversation so in the spirit of hospitality i'm going to let you have the last word what do you want our listeners thinking about the Eucharist poetry or whatever else as we head for the door?
1: Uh, well, I'll start with a shameless plug and just say that if anybody is interested in the book, Oxford gives me these little coupons that I can happily provide anyone. So uh, if that's of interest, let me know. Um, you can find my email easily enough, I'm sure. Uh, and um but I also just want to say that uh, I'm, a, I'm a longtime listener of the program, and I have gotten so much richness out of these interviews about the um, time and the carefulness with which you read these books, and it's really been a treat and a pleasure to be on on uh, this end of things. Um, so yeah, I, I've I've benefited so much from the work that you've put in over the years, and and so thank you for that.
0: Sean Ross, thank you for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Pleasure to be here. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Eucharist, po- Poetics, and Secularization from Oxford University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Brit Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.